Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, last Sunday night, we introduced this new series, More Than a Comma, which just sets out to consider and, and reconsider the, the life of Jesus. And I explained how the title came from a, a realization that as you read some of the historic creeds of the Christian church, and particularly the, the Apostles' Creed, you discover that the life of Jesus has been reduced sorry, to a comma. So it says, they're born of a Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. That all kind of 33 years of Jesus' life in this historic doctrinal statement appear to have been passed over. That everything he did, everything he taught, and all his wisdom is reduced to a punctuation mark. And I know that, and I said this last week, I'm kind of being slightly provocative here, but uh, if one of the central aspects of the Christian faith is a commitment to follow Jesus and to walk as he walked, which we're encouraged to do according to the Apostle John in his first letter, then we've got to be very careful that we don't rush too quickly from the birth of Jesus to the death of Jesus, from Christmas to Easter. We actually need to take time to journey with Jesus, to engage with his life, to listen to his teaching, to reflect on his attitude and behavior, examine his interaction with people. Not because we're attempting to underestimate or downplay the importance of the death of Jesus as as we've just remembered. I don't want us to think that that's what this series is about in any shape or form. But it's just because we don't want to miss. We don't want to kind of bypass 33 years of the most important life that was ever lived. We said last week that some people have kind of described this little bit between manger and cross as the missing middle. And so we kind of want to reclaim that and explore it together. And so using one of the Gospels, And in in this case, it's going to be Luke's gospel. We're going to retrace over a period of weeks running up to Easter uh, key moments in the life of Jesus to see what we can discover, to see what we can learn, and see what we can embrace as we seek to serve and follow him with our lives and in, in this particular context that we find ourselves. Because we do believe and we know that his life was more than a comma. Last week, we, we started at the beginning of Luke 4. And we revisited the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, which comes just after his very uh, public and very dramatic baptism. And we made the point that as we, we, every single one of us, as we wrestle with temptation, one of the, the amazing things from that particular story is that we discover that we can identify with Jesus and that Jesus identifies with us. Because as one New Testament writer goes on to tell us, Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. And I I hope that kind of gives you heart. Because as we said last week, every single one of us here this evening wrestle with temptation on a daily basis. And to know that that, that Jesus, who was, as Roy said, who was one of us, to recognize that he wrestled with it, I would suggest is a real encouragement. And when you look at what happened next and how Jesus dealt with the pressure to compromise, you're reminded about the importance of engaging with God's word because in response to each temptation and there were three Jesus spoke words of truth from scripture 
And although we said that, that learning and quoting passages and sections from the Bible is a great discipline, the critical issue for Christians is to have this consistent engagement with God's word. That we are people of the book. That we're people who read it, we're people who study it, we're people who meditate upon it. So that when we experience temptation, we can kind of filter it through God's word. Because we're people who are immersed in scripture. And therefore we can know how to use it in response to the temptations that we face in a Christ-like way. The other thing, or the other things that we learned based on the responses of Jesus was that we don't live by bread alone, that there's more to life than this. There's more to life than the physical, tangible, material world that we see around us. We live on every word that comes from God's mouth. There is a spiritual dimension to life. Secondly, that we've got to worship God and God alone. Many other things compete for our affection. God and God alone deserves it. And then thirdly, that we should trust God and not test him on whether he actually cares about us and loves us. But that was all last week. This evening, we come to the next recorded incident, which starts kind of from verse 14 on of of Luke 4. Although, can I just mention in passing that based on the information you find in the other Gospels, and this is just helpful to know, there's probably about a year's gap between the 40 days in the wilderness and Jesus coming back to Nazareth. It kind of looks from Luke's Gospel that he just moves from the wilderness straight to Nazareth. But if you read the other Gospels, there's definitely a gap. And in fact, Luke 4.15 seems to to indicate that. So if you do have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Luke 4? It's page 1031 in the Red Pew Bibles. And I know there's lots of visitors here tonight, but what we often do at Windsor is we stand for the public reading of God's Word. So if it's okay, can I invite you to stand with me? So Luke 4, verses 14 through to 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he begun by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zepharath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Take a seat.
Initially, it's really interesting. Initially, Jesus is welcomed with open arms. Did you notice that at the, at the start of that reading? His teachings appreciated, really valued. And clearly he was building up quite a reputation. News about him was spreading, it says, through the whole countryside. And everyone, please don't miss this, but everyone praised Jesus, it says. Jesus at this point in time was popular. So far, what people had heard about Jesus and heard of Jesus was good. It was impressive. It was intriguing. They liked a lot of what he was saying. And you know something that still happens today? So much of the teaching of Jesus makes sense to so many people. It deserves respect. So much of the teaching of Jesus does appeal. But as happened here, there are also aspects of Jesus' ministry and mission that people don't like. That people can't cope with or they simply reject. And so as we share the story as we hold out the good news of Jesus and as we attempt to reflect his values and his characteristics and his instructions there will be times whenever people welcome our words whenever they like our attitude whenever they appreciate our stance as Christians and they respect us for it but there will also be those moments whenever the teaching and the claims of Jesus will spark a negative reaction will create tension will provoke concern and definitely will shut down certain conversations. But for now, in Luke 4, Jesus is kind of on the crest of a wave. don't think I've ever really appreciated this uh, until this week I was kind of looking at this. But he was on the crest of a wave. And so it says he heads home, he heads back to where he grew up, back to Nazareth, back to familiar surroundings, back to his local synagogue. It turns out This was part of his regular routine. According to that little phrase there in verse 16, as was his custom. And I don't want to read too much into this, but it does communicate something about Jesus' spirituality. Gathering and meeting with others to worship and to pray and to listen to Scripture was clearly important to Jesus. It was an integral part of his schedule, of his rhythm of life, as was his custom. This is what he did. But at this particular service, Jesus stands up to read. Stands up to read God's word. And an attendant hands on the scroll, and it's the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Now whether Jesus had any choice in which book or which scroll or which prophecy to read, well that's debatable. But in terms of which specific text he read from that entire scroll, well, that seems to have been left up to his own discretion. Because it says in verse 17, unrolling it, he finds the place where it is written. So clearly Jesus was looking for this. Now let's not forget there were no chapters and verses in the original scroll. But we can now determine that Jesus read from the beginning of Isaiah 61. And what he read, plus where he stopped reading, is fascinating. By the way, this, and some of you will know, has come to be known as the Nazareth Manifesto. Because here is Jesus making a kind of public statement. Here's Jesus setting the agenda for his ministry and telling everyone what he was about and what he was going to do. But, but that's rushing ahead. 
So Jesus stands and he reads these words that are recorded by Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now everyone who was listening to this for the first time, everyone in that synagogue immediately recognized what Jesus was reading. This was a prophecy. They knew that. This was spoken by Isaiah. And it was spoken by Isaiah of the promised deliverer. This was a reference to the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. And lots of people in this day and age were waiting for that person to arrive. Couldn't wait for this person to arrive. Deliberate them. And to deal in no uncertain terms with the occupying forces, the hated Romans. They were waiting for this person. But where Jesus finishes reading is interesting, if not a little strange. You see, Jesus, it seems, stops mid-sentence. Because if you go back to Isaiah 61, where Jesus was quoting from, this is what it says. Notice where he stops. Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where Jesus stopped. But it goes on to say, in the day of vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus not read that bit? Why did Jesus stop where he stopped? As far as the people were concerned at one level, Jesus missed the best bit, the vengeance bit, the sorting out bit. And so at one level, as we read on, it's no wonder all eyes are fixed on him. And as he rolls up the scroll and he hands it back to the tent, everybody is just staring at him. And as Jesus sits down to begin to teach, because that's the way it worked then, Rabbi sat to teach. So as Jesus sat down to teach, he begins his first and probably his only sermon in his hometown with this incredible statement. Today, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so what they realize is they're sitting there, eyes fixed on him, having just listened to what he said. They realize that here is Jesus making a very explicit claim to be the servant of the Lord. To be the promised deliverer. This is Jesus claiming to be the Messiah. But it seems that he's different to. Very different to and from what they were expecting. His agenda is intriguing. He's here to preach good news to the poor. He's here to do works of deliverance. Now in this context... The poor and the prisoner, they were the ones seen as those God wasn't interested in. He clearly hadn't blessed the poor, the oppressed, the prisoner, because if he had, they wouldn't be in that condition. And that was the kind of thinking that existed here. But Jesus is making making it clear that the marginalized are included. That his message and his ministry is also for them. And I say also because I don't believe Jesus is somehow saying that God is interested in the poor rather than the rich 
or that God is interested in the oppressed rather than the free. He's simply saying, he's simply implying that God cares about everyone, but that everyone includes the marginalized and the alienated and the downtrodden. Now, the thing is, and I know many of you are aware of this, some people have taken these words of Jesus as he quotes Isaiah's prophecy and have argued about them. And actually many Christians have fallen out over these words. Because they fall out as to whether these verses refer specifically to the spiritual poor and the marginalized. Is, is that who's referred to here? In other words, everyone who's disconnected from God because of sin. Or is Jesus here actually referring to the literal poor, the actual poor and downtrodden, which is a more sort of particular demographic within our society and within our world? And people have wrestled with this for years. And I, I appreciate the tension. I understand something of the complexities of the arguments. But I don't think it's a case of either or. Surely it's both and. Jesus did come to live and die for everyone who believes in him, irrespective of their personal circumstances, their income level, or their place in society. Plus, we also know that God has a particular interest and concern for those crushed by poverty. The Bible makes that really clear. Over 2,000 verses refer to our responsibility to the poor, to God's heart for the poor. But it's not either or. It's both and. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is inclusive. Surely that's the issue. We all need it, the spiritual and literal poor, the spiritually and physically oppressed, the spiritual and literal prisoner. They all need the good news of Jesus. Well, back to the story. Because Jesus might have missed a bit, a bit about vengeance. And his statement concerning this idea that the fulfillment of this prophecy was now taking place in their hearing, that was all interesting to say the least. But overall, as you read on, it seems it was well accepted. Although there were clearly questions brewing in people's minds. As Jesus appears to pause for a moment, Luke tells us in verse 22, have a look at it, that all still spoke well of him. And they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. At least that's how I reckon most of your versions will read, including mine. If you have a King James version, here's how that verse reads. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And when you look at what happened next, some Bible commentators feel that that is a far better and far more accurate translation of the original. Yes, they've heard him. His words were certainly gracious. I mean, it's all about good news. It's all about freedom. It's all about release. It's all about recovery of sight. But they're left wondering, not so much amazed the way the NIV puts it, but more wondering at his gracious words. But not just wondering, they've also got issues with them. At the end of verse 22, someone then asks the obvious question, hang on a minute, is, is, this, is this not Joseph's 
son. At the end of the day, we all know him. He's just come back again. Or at least we think we know him. How could he be the Messiah? How could he be the promised deliverer? He's just a carpenter's boy from the sticks. How is he going to fulfill all of this? You see, people thought they knew Jesus. And yet he constantly challenged their understanding of him. And again, I want to suggest that that still happens today. Many people think they've got a handle on Jesus. That they think they know exactly who he is and what he's about. And yet, there is always more to discover and enjoy. But how Jesus then responds to them when they ask this question, isn't this Joseph's son? Again, it's fascinating. Strange too. Look at verse 23. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Like, where did that come from? Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard you do in Capernaum. In other words, if you're going to heal and deliver people as you've just implied you will, then tell you what, do it here. Prove it. We've heard that you've done it somewhere else in Capernaum, so, so do it here now that you're back home. If you say all this stuff about you that the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord anointed you, let's see you do something here. And that whole quest for proof of who Jesus is and what he has done was never far from him. Even one of his closest disciples, Thomas, wouldn't believe what he had heard about Jesus until he stuck his finger or his hand in Jesus' side. People want tangible proof. The problem is they don't always get it. And even when people do get tangible proof, they don't always accept it. Which is kind of how the life of Jesus pans out. Jesus went on to do lots of amazing things, lots of miraculous jaw-dropping things, but people still rejected him and eventually killed him. So all the sort of physical tangible proof in the world doesn't necessarily convince anybody. And as Jesus continues speaking in the synagogue, he then says a few more things. To start with, he makes the point that no prophet is accepted in his, his hometown. Matthew, when he kind of records a similar saying, he adds a bit more flesh to the bones and he puts it like this, but I don't have it, I thought I did. Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And the principle seems to be, and it's a principle that is kind of stuck, that some people can't see past the fact that you grew up amongst them. You're just a local kid. And therefore, we're always going to see you through that lens. You're just Joseph's son. You're just a carpenter's boy. That is the only lens in which we can see you through. And therefore, Jesus said, I realize that a prophet was, is without honor in his hometown. And Jesus seems to be okay with that. But then he goes on to recount a couple of incidents from their history. And this is, this is where the sermon starts to go south. He starts telling a couple of stories from their Hebrew scriptures. His popularity is all of a sudden decimated. His reputation because of these two stories is wrecked. His life becomes on a knife edge 
or a cliff edge, to be more precise. Because after telling these two stories, it's really interesting. Everybody goes berserk. Everybody. They've been praising him. They've been amazed or they've wondered at his gracious words. But as a result of these two stories, they lose it. And they want to run him out of town. And they want to kill him. So what was the big deal about these two stories? Why did they provoke such a furious reaction? How come some people can be sitting in church listening to a sermon one moment and within a few sentences they're on their feet consumed by murderous intent? You see, preachers really do need to be careful about what they say. I've no doubt I wind a number of you up quite a lot often, but hopefully never to this extent. Jesus refers to two of their most important prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And so maybe it's the sense that in some way Jesus is comparing himself to them. That's what causes the bristles to rise, maybe. But probably the biggest problem was that in both those stories, a prophet, God's prophet, comes to the aid of a Gentile, a foreigner, not a Jew. Here Jesus seems to be telling the people that as one commentator puts it, prophets are not guided and limited by in-group loyalties. Prophets also minister to Gentiles. And they not only minister also to Gentiles, but to Gentiles from very differing socioeconomic and political backgrounds. So we have widows on the margins and we have powerful Syrian commanders. And the point is here, Both are used by God. Both are helped by God. Both believe in God. Both are part of God's plans and purposes. And as far as these people were concerned, as they listened to Jesus telling these stories, they said, you know something? This sounds like God is working on the wrong side of the street. Israel's God seems to be rescuing the wrong people. And that just messes with their heads and their prejudices. This is way too disturbing to take and comprehend. Jesus seems to have the audacity to claim that this good news, this freedom, this release, this gospel, if you like, was not just for Jews, but was for everyone. That was way, way too inclusive. And rather than thank God for his amazing grace, rather than give thanks for God's expansive love, they get angry. They react aggressively. And people often do whenever it turns out that God works beyond their predetermined boundaries. And as we all know, Jesus also lived out this maddening message of God's inclusive and expansive love. So in other words, the messenger became the message And so he told stories about what? About good Samaritans. That didn't go down well. He also ate with vertically challenged tax collectors. And as he sat down with a woman at the well, he should never have done that. He should never have spoke to her. He should never have offered her hope for so many reasons. Not just because of who she was, but because of the kind of life that she'd lived. And Jesus and his gospel continues to cross boundaries and barriers. And people in Nazareth, in this church, in this synagogue, they wanted to keep outsiders out. 
didn't want to offer them mercy, good news, hope. And so enough was enough as far as they were concerned. If this local boy thought he was the Messiah, or if he somehow thought that he was the promised deliverer, deliverer who was coming to rescue and save anyone and everyone, then he needed to be taken out, literally taken out. And as I say, Jesus and his gospel keeps crossing boundaries. Keeps reaching out to all people and all people groups, irrespective of whatever labels and categories or boxes we use to define them. And as people who follow Jesus, and I know that's the vast majority of you here this evening, as people who follow Jesus, we have got to be prepared to share his message, to go into all the world, to take this good news to everyone and anyone, especially those who, for whatever reason, we think deserve it the least. We are good news people. This manifesto, this agenda of Jesus becomes ours at a certain level. This message for the marginalized is our message. And therefore, it's so important in a sense that we get with that program. Am I a good news person? That whoever I meet, whatever context that I express love, that I proclaim good news to them. On this particular day, back in Luke 4, the people thought that they were about to get rid of Jesus once and for all. He had infuriated them to such an extent because of his all-inclusive message. And so they took him to a cliff edge with the, the intent of killing him. And verse 30 says this, and it, it's, it is, I don't know how this worked. It says, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. A couple of years later, people were absolutely convinced they'd silenced Jesus for good. But they hadn't. Because he walked out of a sealed tomb after three days. And it seems that he's still alive. That he's still proclaiming good news to the poor. Freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. How's he doing that? Through us. Through us. His body on earth. He's still setting the oppressed free. Through the gospel. Which we carry with us wherever we go. And I want to thank God for the ongoing life and witness of Jesus in our world. I'm going to pray in a moment and then we're going to close. And we're going to close by doing something a little different. We're just going to listen to a piece of music. I quite like to uh, kind of play a variety of different pieces of music. Tonight we're going to have a bit of Elgar. Okay? Uh, and it's a song that he wrote many years ago based, a piece of music that he wrote and lyrics based on these words, uh, sung by St. John's College. And what I'm going to just invite you to do is just listen, reflect, and use these four minutes, because that's all we're going to play it for. Use these four minutes to kind of just prepare for the week that lies ahead. And ask God to help you to be a good news person to all those you come into contact with. <laughs>